All right, everybody. Um, we're back here. We're working through this series, Curveball. And uh, I promise you I'm not going to do this every week, but I'm going to start the same way I've started the last three weeks. I hate this. Um, uh, this morning, it, it is palpable for me. I can really feel this because uh, in talking with Tony and, and Matt and Jordan six weeks ago, uh, we were talking through singing those songs, and uh, my heart was so excited about being able to sing those songs and what it would sound like in this room with y'all singing along and how convinced I was that we would blow the doors off of this place just singing those songs with just just our voices and a piano and, and guitar to carry us uh, along, and instead it feels more empty in here this morning than it has at any point so far. Um, I, I hate this. I, I hate sin. I, I hate that sin has done this to us. And I know we're talking about a virus and we're talking about politicians and all this other stuff, but, but this is a result of a broken world and this is just one of those effects and I absolutely hate it. But I do love that I can still figure out some way to connect with you guys, that I can still get up here and I can teach God's Word. I can do what I love. I hope that you guys are finding ways to be able to do what you love. Maybe even in the midst of this, be able to do the things that you love that you haven't been able to for uh, a very, very long time. I've kind of found that over the last two or three weeks that there's kind of two camps here uh, since the, the world has shut down that you either got a lot busier or you got really bored, one of those two things, uh, and there's really no in-between. It just depends on, on whether or not you're able to work and how you're able to work, and um, I don't know. I just, I don't, I don't like any of this, and, and I'll be honest with you, uh, for me, this past week is the first time that this has begun to, I think, really grind on me. Uh, and maybe maybe you're feeling that too. Maybe you're sensing uh, that too. And my prayer in all of that, my prayer for myself is that that grind would not be something that grinds us to uh, a place of um, emptiness or hopelessness, but instead it would be a grind that's more like a refinement where God is reshaping and remolding us in a way where he's saying, all right, this is who I want you to be, church. This is who I need you to be, and, and hopefully we'll be, we'll be that. You know, what we're trying to do here, honestly, there's, there's a, a lot of stuff going into it and how we're trying to pull some things off and how we're trying to do things, but uh, we were just talking this morning, like, we're not trying to fool anybody here. You know, we show some of these behind-the-scenes things. Chris, put, put that up there. We show some of these behind-the-scenes things just to show you how ridiculous this stuff looks and how, uh, how we're, we don't have anything fancy or elaborate. We're not, like, there's no smoke machines up here. We've got the lights on so you can see my bright face that I've been told multiple times should have makeup on it. I'm not doing that. Um, we're just here. We're just here to study God's word together, and I'm glad that you guys have chosen to join us. So, with that uh, enthusiastic and wonderfully encouraging introduction, let's get to let's get to work. We're going to be in the book of Ruth this morning, and I and I'll be honest with you though, the book of Ruth for me is uh, I'm super excited to do this. It is my favorite book in the Old Testament. It might be my favorite book in all of the Bible, and I. 
I honestly can't think of a better book for us to study or to look at this morning. We, uh, we, we could do a whole series on it for sure, but we're going to look at primarily the first chapter of the book of Ruth this morning that I think truly speaks well to us uh, and, and can really help us this morning. And, and my prayer is that it helps you uh, over the course of the next few weeks, because I know that God's Word will teach us and will teach us well. So we're going to keep going in this series, Curveball, When Life Doesn't Go How You Expected. And, and the, the, the book of Ruth, I think, will, will drive us and teach us well. So let's get right to work. Let's look in Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, we looked at the book of Judges last week and we talked about how terrible things were at that time. That's when this book happens. That's when these events take place. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land and a man in Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab and he and his wife and his two sons. Stop right there. That sets the stage for us. That reminds us of, of where we're at, the period of history where we are, a time where things were dark, where uh, the people of God, as we saw last week, had forgotten their authority, had forgotten their place, had forgotten their history, had forgotten their God. They had forgotten uh, all of these things. Uh, and, and what it said in the book of Judges over and over again, and how the book of Judges ended, just you, you turn back one page, the next last verse that you read says, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Well, this book opens up and it seems that not only did everyone do what was right in their own eyes and not only had everyone forgotten who God was, it seems as though, it seems as though uh, God has forgotten uh, them as well. It seems as though the, that God had forgotten the people of Israel as well as the people of Israel forgetting God. So this man, this family was leaving Bethlehem because there was a famine there. The land that was supposed to be flowing with milk and honey was suddenly all dried up. For all the world, it looked like God had walked away from his people. So his people were, were now leaving this, this wonderful place they had found, and they were looking elsewhere for food. So let's read what these good folks did whenever they left this wonderful place they were supposed to be at. They left Bethlehem, literally the house of bread in Hebrew. They left there and they went out to Moab for this food. So let's read in verse 2. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Epaphrathites. You say that. From Bethlehem in Judah. They went to the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there for about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died. So that the, women, so that the woman was left without her two sons and without her husband. So the book of Ruth doesn't exactly get off to a thrilling start. This is not encouraging for us to read. You're in the time of the judges where things are dark. There's a famine in the land. And now Naomi has lost her husband and she has lost her two sons. A famine, a dead husband, two dead sons, and three widows. That's what we've got five verses in to the book of Ruth. This is a dark, dark picture that is painted here for us. For all the world, it seems as though... Uh, 
God is nowhere to be found. He's nowhere to be found in the people of Israel, and he's nowhere to be found in this, this picture. The people have left him, and for what we can see, he has left them. And I wonder if you can identify with that this morning. Maybe it's now in the midst of this pandemic that you can kind of uh, identify with this. From uh, It's not hard to draw a parallel between famine and pandemic. It's not hard to, to get to that place. Maybe it's when you've lost your job. Maybe it's uh, when you look at your marriage. Or maybe it's when you look at uh, y- your health. You're not sure who left first. You're not sure if you left God first or if God left you first. But all you know is that you and God aren't really on good speaking terms right now. Your world looks more like uh, you scratching and clawing to make it to tomorrow, uh, far more than it looks like you living in abundance under God's promises and God's provision. You've gotten a curveball. We've all gotten a curveball holistically in this big picture, but maybe you've gotten one personally to go along with it. And not only have you swung and missed, you feel like you've completely struck out. You, You didn't see it coming. You didn't respond well when it showed up, and here we are today in the midst of all of this. Naomi could relate to you. I mean, after all, who could blame poor Naomi? And I don't say that uh, sarcastically at all. Naomi is in a bad spot here. She's been dealt a raw hand. She thought she had the world by the tail. She had a full plan. She had left Bethlehem with her husband. They had gone. They had found food. They had set up a household. Uh, She had a husband. She had two sons to carry on the family name and to be able to provide for the family, to protect the family. She had two daughter-in-laws that for all intents and purposes seemed to be really good gals. They weren't Israelites. They were Moabites, but they seemed to be really good. And now basically all of that is gone. The whole plan that they had is gone. Everything is gone. The dreams, the plans, the whole story Naomi had written out for the rest of her life has now got to be completely rewritten. And who could blame Naomi for not being on great terms with God at this point? So let's see how Naomi handles this. Does she handle this like a, like a, a valiant woman who charges ahead and, and says, no matter what, I'm going to have faith in God and all will be well? Let's see how Naomi, Naomi handles this. Verse 9. The Lord grant that you may find rest. She is talking here to Ruth and to Orpah. She is saying, Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to, to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. For it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And then they lifted up their voices and they wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So Naomi's not doing well here. She is not this, you know, superwoman, cape flapping in the wind, charging forward. 
Uh, this doesn't sound like the Proverbs 31 woman where, uh, you know, she laughs at the, 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 the evil to come. N- none of that. Naomi's mad. She's upset. She's bitter. She's not doing well. She's basically, I don't, I don't know if you realize what she's doing here, but she's basically trying to take her, her own life here. Because if these women leave her, which she's encouraging them to do, if Ruth goes her own way, and if Orpah goes her own way, then there's almost no chance that she can survive in this culture. A widow alone is in a very, very dangerous place. There's no one to provide for her. There's no prospect of a husband, and there's no going back to a land that she had walked away from over a decade ago. She was alone. She had no place. She had no friends. She had no family, and she was more than willing to let her daughters-in-law walk away so that she could just be done. And not only is she ready for it to be over, She's bitter about it. She's bitter that God has done her this way. She's over it. She's ready for it all to be done. This scene is an emotional scene. She's weeping and she's crying. She's kissing her daughters-in-law. They're, 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 they're hugging her and they're, they're clinging to her and they're, uh, they're, they're protesting with her that, that, that they shouldn't, she, she shouldn't be pushing them away. And, and what, what do we make of this scene? This emotional scene where, where, where they're, they're, they're hugging one another, they're clinging to one another, they've all been through this terribly emotional time. What do we make of a scene like this, all of this crying? Should we dismiss them as just being over-emotional women, or should we dismiss them as being uh, just, just bitter women, or should we dismiss them as, as, as not being that Proverbs 31 kind of model where you laugh at the times to come? Maybe they just don't have a, a, enough faith, and that's why they're so sad here. Maybe if they just trusted God in all of this, all would be well. What do we attribute all of this? What, how do we make sense of that? Church, I... I need you to hear me today, and maybe this is an obvious point for some of you, but I promise you it is not obvious for everyone, because I've seen so many people post it on Facebook. When somebody posts that they're worried, or they're nervous, or they're scared, or that they're dealing with all that's going on around us, the the inevitable Facebook post that will come back is, it'll be fine, you shouldn't be afraid, do not fear, after all is what God says, and you just need to have enough faith, and if you just have enough faith, it will go away. But I want you to hear me. What what Naomi and what Orpah and Ruth are doing together here in this scene where they are crying and they are, are lamenting, it is okay. It is completely okay. It is a legitimate response and totally understandable <clears throat> for what they've been dealing with. It's okay to cry. It's okay to lament. It's okay to tell God that you hate this stuff. It's exactly how I started this morning. It's okay to say this stuff stinks. It's miserable. I don't like this. I don't like being cooped up. I don't like seeing people that are dying. I don't like seeing people that are sick. I don't like what I see. I don't like what I hear. I don't like what I'm having to deal with. I don't like what sin has done to me and my own life. I don't like what sin has done to my family and their lives. I don't like what it's done to my relationships. I don't like what it's done to the world. It's totally okay to say that, and it's okay to cry, and it's okay to be 
frustrated, and it's okay to wonder how long is this going to last. We're going to look at that a lot in this series, and we're going to look at some of the things that David prayed about, some of the things that he dealt with. It's okay. You don't have to be you don't have to be all right with how things are right now. You shouldn't be all right with how things are right now. It's okay to admit that. God has designed us to rely on one another, and that has been, in large part, ripped from us. Now, there's some things we can do to make shift, and I hope you're, or make, make do, and, and I hope that you are, are doing that. I hope that you're making phone calls and using FaceTime and Zoom and whatever else God has given us in this time. I hope you're doing that. But the reality is our ability to connect with one another has been ripped for us, and that is how we are designed. So it's okay to lament the things that have been taken for us. It's okay to lament baby showers that have been canceled and, 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 and redone in different ways. It's okay to lament weddings that, have been ha- that needed to be either rescheduled or done in a way that's completely different than how you have dreamed your whole life. It's okay to, 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 to be sad and to be frustrated about graduations that don't happen how they're supposed to. Your lament is okay. And not only is it okay, your lament is a pathway to a sustained faith in God. It is a cobblestone street. It is not a smooth street. It is a rough one with rough pavement, but it is a pathway to faith in God, and it is one that God has given us. And he has said, if you will travel that pathway of lament, if you will go forward in that, I will meet you in that. And it's okay to do that. It's okay to do what happens here with Naomi and with Orpah and with Ruth. Naomi has, is right to cry, to weep, to lament. She's been left to die. Her life has been ripped from her. But if you look, the, the problem that comes is not in the fact that they lament or even that they lament together. The problem that comes is what Naomi's lament consists of. It's not so much in what she's lost but it's what she reads into the loss. And this is where Naomi starts to get in trouble. She sees all that has happened to her, the death of her husband, the death of her sons, the famine that she's dealing with. She sees all that's happened to her as God's hand against her. And now it has made her bitter against God. It's made her bitter in her outlook on life. This is Naomi's major misstep. You see, Naomi is distraught, not because of her loss, but because of what she assigns to that loss. She's bitter and assumes that God's hand has risen against her, as though she has been, uh, she, she, is, she has had all these things taken from her because God is exacting some sort of punishment on her. So what I want to do is I want to read just a little bit further. I want to see that point made a little bit more. And then I want to see where the, 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 the story begins to turn. So Ruth, after this emotional scene, refuses to leave her mother-in-law for dead. Orpah goes, Orpah kisses her, tells her goodbye, says, I, I will go, I'll go find another husband. But Ruth will not leave. And they become this poor widowed pair looking for some mercy. And this is where Ruth utters the phrase that's so famous from this book, your people will be my people. Where you go, I'll go. And where you're buried, I'll be buried too. A very real prospect for them in the midst of this. 
And that's where we pick up in verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi won't even be called by the same name anymore. She's so bitter. Naomi, the, 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 the name means pleasant or kind kind of like joyful, like a, like a spring day with butterflies all around and, and, and flowers at your feet. Naomi said, that is not a picture of my life. The, 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 the butterflies are gone. The flowers are not here. It is a bare and desolate land. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Call me bitter because I am bitter and God hates me. But all of that bitterness and all of that angst, while understandable in that moment, is really where we have to learn this morning. This is, this is the heart of this text and our lesson to hear this morning. Naomi was bitter because she assumed God was out to get her and that he had left her for dead. She was bitter because her life had been ruined and God not only didn't apologize to her for it, he seemed to drive a wedge even further. So her bitterness set in. And this is always the temptation in suffering. It's always calling out to us when we get a curveball and whenever life doesn't go as planned. It's always a temptation when God doesn't do what we think he should be doing. Because after all, isn't God powerful enough to make the pain go away? Wasn't he powerful enough for me to be able to keep my life going just as it was? And if he is powerful enough, then why doesn't he? The only answer is that either he wants to hurt you or that he really wasn't there in the first place. That's where our minds go. And that is the lie that Satan is trying so hard to get so many people to believe right now. That either he isn't powerful enough or that he isn't good enough. And that that is really our only options that we can choose from. He is either too absent or he is too weak. But God, through this book, shows us, shows us that there is more that is going on. The lie is that God is, is, is not there, but the truth is that God is always, always, always at work. This world is broken. We saw that two weeks ago. It is deeply and completely broken. God has not chosen to redeem this world yet, to fix things yet, to remove disease and sickness and death and pain and frustration and broken relationships and all of those things. He has not seen fit to remove those things yet. We still have to live and operate within a world that is broken by sin. We aren't promised great things within this world. We aren't promised worlds without famines and without pandemics. We aren't promised relationships that just click right along as though everything was fine. We aren't promised long lives or healthy bodies. It's all part of living in a broken world. And it's all part of the framework God has chosen to work within. 
You see, Naomi's bitterness was rooted not just in her pain, but in her ignorance of what was happening in this moment. Her assumptions about God were wrong. She had bought into those lies that either God was too weak or too absent or too angry at her. Her assumptions were wrong. None of those things were correct about what God was doing. He was at work. Look with me in verse 22 of chapter 1. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. That's how chapter 1 ends. This chapter that up to this point had been nothing but bad news over and over and over and over again. It ends with that final, that final piece of, of knowledge there in the scene. That they had left Moab. They had come back to Israel. It was harvest time now. Which means that the famine was over. There was food to be harvested. And that little phrase is the first little piece of positivity that we see in this book. We see that there's, there's something in the narrative starting to turn. That even in the midst of the darkness, even in the midst of the pain, even in the midst of the crying and the weeping and the lamenting, something in the story was starting, was starting to change. Naomi didn't see it. Ruth didn't see it. But God was working even there. What follows is a beautiful love story between Naomi's daughter-in-law Ruth and this guy named Boaz, one of my favorite characters in all of Scripture. I wish I had time to talk about this story. It is so good. I won't spend a lot of time here, but I'm going to give you a quick summary. It's basically a Jane Austen film in Israel. That's pretty much what this is. Poor girl gets up with a hooks up with a rich guy, sees this rich guy, says, hey, I like that guy. The rich guy sees her and says, hey, who's that girl over there? The rich guy is too dense to really notice, but, uh, but she's really so nice that it, that it works out. Uh, after he picks up on the flirting, he doesn't really care that, that she's poor at that point. Uh, he almost loses her due to some technicality in, the, in a plot twist. And, uh, but because he's rich, he gets away with it. Um, actually, that's just how the Jane Austen films and books work. But uh, he, he does end up marrying her, and he, he welcomes Naomi into the family, and everyone is happy. And the moral of the story is rich guys fix everything. That's actually not the moral of the story. I'm just kidding. It's really weird to tell jokes in here because there's nobody in here but like four or five people. That was funny. I think that was funny. Uh, if you've seen any Jane Austen films, you know that that's pretty funny. Uh, and that is how Jane Austen films work. But that's not the moral of the story. It's not that rich guys fix, fix everything. Uh, the moral of the story is that Naomi's bitterness was rooted in an ignorance of what God was doing. She didn't fully understand what was going on around her. She didn't know what God was about to do through her and through her family. All she knew was what she saw in that moment. And her ignorance led her to bitterness because she didn't know what all God was doing. Her ignorance led her to assume false motives on the part of what God was doing in that time. Her ignorance led her to assume that in this world broken by sin, the only thing that we have is suffering and then we die. What she didn't realize is that 
God has chosen to work within the framework of this world. And when he works within the framework of this world, sin and bitterness and brokenness will be a part of all of it. But he's chosen to work within it. And because he's God, he is powerful enough to to dissolve those two kind of false choices that were given. Either he's absent or he's weak, one or the other, or he's not good. Any of those things that you get thrown out there at you, that doesn't have to be the case. The reality is God can allow certain things to happen and he 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 can work within the brokenness that is around us. So why did all this stuff happen to Naomi? I, I don't know exactly, but I know God was working within it. Why did the famine happen in the land? I don't know, but I know that God was working within it. Why do we have a pandemic right now? I, d- I don't know, but I know that he's working in it. Why are you uh, dealing with all these things that you're at home right now? Why are you already getting on each other's nerves? Why are you? Everything is heightened at this point, Right? We're, we're, we're far enough into this thing that, that all of the, the, the kind of novelty and the, the spectacle of it all is starting to wear off and it's starting to grind and you're starting to realize, oh wait, I see how I'm a sinner and I very much see how you're a sinner and I am really kind of getting over it. So if you guys can kind of knock it off, I would appreciate it because I am not as much a sinner as you are a sinner. And, and all of those things are getting heightened. Relationships are being strained. Whatever it is you're, you're dealing with, if your marriage is under strain, it's, it's, it's being brought out. If your parenting is under strain, it's being brought out. If you are single and you are alone, that is being brought out in a, in a new degree. But what I can promise you is that in the midst of all of that, God is working. God is doing something. He is working on us and he is working in us. This stuff is hard. It's no good. I'm an introvert and I'm over this. Some of you extroverts are like talking to trees in your backyard at this point. So I I know that this is no fun, but God's at work in all of this. And in that, we 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 can take some solace. We can know that he's at work just like he was here. And what's great is when you go to the end of this book now, go to chapter 4 of the book of Ruth, turn over just a couple of pages, and you can see just how great God was working in this. Verse 14 of chapter 4. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in all of Israel. So Boaz and Ruth have gotten married, they've had a child, there is a a baby shower and a celebration and all is well, and all these women are saying, look how blessed you are, Naomi, not Mara, not bitter, Naomi now. Look how blessed you are, this woman who has lost her sons and who has lost her husband, who's had to deal with all this pain, now they're calling her blessed. Verse 15, He he shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. And And then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed who was the father of Jesse, the father of David, King David, the King David. The, the, the King David that would be born in Bethlehem that, ye, that 
centuries later, in the city of David, another king would be born. Of course, that would be Jesus. Turns out that God was at work the whole time to ensure that the line for the future king, David, and ultimately, as we celebrate here on Palm Sunday, the King Jesus would be born. That's what he was doing in the midst of all of this. If it's not for this story and this dark chapter of Naomi's life, there's no David, there's no Jesus. Without Ruth and Naomi, none of the rest of your Bible happens. Not only without Ruth and Naomi, but without Ruth and Naomi and all of their suffering, none of the rest of your Bible happens. God was at work, even in the midst of a national turmoil and in the midst of the judges where the people had forgotten about him and in the midst of a a famine and all of those things, God was at work and that is true today. God is at work in the midst of our quarantine and whatever else we're dealing with in the midst of your, your, your flawed and broken relationships in the midst of the suffering God is at work. He did not just look at this world and it's suffering from a distance and say, y'all figure it out. I'll be here on the other side. Hope you make it. He says, I'm going to work. And I'm going to work in such a way that it is so much bigger than what you're dealing with now. For Ruth and Naomi, what that meant is that the Savior would come eventually through that line. For us, what that means is that we can look back on when King Jesus came came into town on the back of a donkey and they said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that just a few days later, a week later, he would die, he would be crucified. God himself in the flesh would be crucified. Himself a victim of a broken world that he was coming to redeem. For now, we still stay in that broken world. But we don't stay in that broken world without hope. We stay in that broken world knowing that God himself entered in, suffered, died on the cross for our sins, for your sins. So this morning as we celebrate Palm Sunday, this morning as we deal with this stuff that we're dealing with, what we want to do is we just want to say, God, we trust you even though we don't, we don't really see you in so many things right now. God, we confess that we are blind to so many things. And it is my prayer, it is our prayer that we would go back to the cross and that we would know that we can trust him. Because he did not leave us on our own, but he sent his son. I'm ready for Easter, y'all. It's not going to be what I want it to be, but I'm ready for Easter. may not be anybody here, but I'm going to hoot and I'm going to holler and I'm going to shout. Because Jesus died, but then he rose again. I hope this week that's where your heart is heading, because that's where mine is heading. Will you pray with me? Father, I do confess that I am blind to see how you work, and I, I, I don't know if that's because I am blind due to my sinfulness or if it is because I am blind due to the fact that you have hidden it from me. 
But what I, I do ask is that you would show me how you were at work. And where you don't show me, God, I ask that you would, that you would enable me to trust you in your hand. And that one day I would know and I would see what it is you were doing. Maybe when I see members of Providence one day before your throne and I can say, oh man, I see how God was working on you during that time. Isn't it awesome that he didn't leave us alone? Maybe it's whenever I I look at my own family and I'm able to say, I see how God was working in the midst of this, even though it's so frustrating. And I can smile. Father, I, I do long for just a glimpse of that right now. But Father, where you choose not to give us a glimpse of that or where I am too blind to see it, I pray that you would enable my heart to trust you, that I can go back to the cross and I can know that ultimately you have given your son for me and that I can trust that. Father, I hate my sin for so many reasons, but today I hate my sin because of what it veils from me. Father, make me more like you so that I can just see a little bit more of what you're doing. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.